Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. This episode, we're going to shift our attention to food and agriculture, which is very topical right now. At the consumer level, we're seeing traditionally inexpensive items like iceberg lettuce going for above $10. And at the same time, seeing traditionally expensive items like avocados at pretty much rock bottom prices. The reason for these price swings, well, it's not the demand side that's changed at all. It's, it's all about the supply side, which is a constant risk in, to the industry, mainly due to environmental factors. So with this in mind, I thought we should have a conversation about investing in food and agriculture and find out where the industry is going and what the companies are doing to reduce costs and make the supply side more stable and sustainable despite these ongoing environmental factors. I'm joined by Wilson's Head of Research, James Ferrier, and Wilson's Equity Analyst, Emma Wyndham-Smith, who both focus on these industries. Emma, James, welcome to the Invested Best podcast. Thanks, Ted. Good to be here. Thanks, Ted. Emma, I might start off with you. Wilson's recently held a sustainable food conference in Brisbane. Emma, why are investors so focused on this industry and, and, and what were some of the topics covered? Well, the global um, population has more than quadrupled in size over the last century and agricultural production has intensified rapidly over this time to keep up with demand for food and fibre. Worldwide agriculture currently accounts for 70% of freshwater consumption, accounts for more than 20% of greenhouse gas emissions. So with global populations continuing to grow, the need for significant improvements in agricultural production efficiency is becoming increasingly important. So the Wilson Sustainability Food Conference was a great opportunity to explore key topics such as water efficiency, waste management, animal welfare, varietal improvements, climate change, as well as social factors with some of Australia's leading food producers. Okay, you covered quite a bit there, but there's one other topic that I want to touch on. It's almost a bit of a buzzword right now, and we hear about um, carbon farming, and we might touch on that in the conversation uh, going forward. Carbon farming, it sounds very futuristic. Can you just kind of give us a bit of info? What does it actually entail? So carbon farming is simply farming in a way that reduces greenhouse gas emissions or captures and holds carbon in vegetation or soils. So there's a variety of agricultural methods that farmers can employ to achieve this. And if it's done successfully, it can aid plant growth, improve soil water retention and capacity and reduce the use of fertilizers. So this means farmers could essentially generate carbon credits through sustainable farming. However, given the cost of carbon farming still remains relatively high, and carbon credit market is still in its infancy, we're yet to see carbon farming widely employed across Australian farms. 
one other topic that I want to quickly touch on before we kind of jump into some of the topics and the companies discussed in the Wilson Sustainable Food Conference uh, is around consumers' perceptions of sustainability. So, James, I might shift to you here. Can you share with us a bit of info on what these negative associations consumers might have, um, in particular what intensive farming looks like and you know, kind of a, a, another question there, well, why it's important for food and agricultural companies to be focusing on sustainable practices right now? Yeah, thanks, Ted. Um, good question. Emma mentioned the fact that agriculture accounts for in excess of 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And I think we should consider that alongside the expectation we all have of a growing population over time. So you can see why agriculture... Um, food and sustainability are important topics um, and they solicit broad and, and in some cases very strong opinions from consumers. Sustainability is critical for the agriculture industry to meet the world's increased food requirements whilst also addressing consumer concerns over the environmental footprint. So to link this discussion into the Wilson's Sustainable Food Production Conference, one of the common themes from participating companies was the opportunity to increase the intensity of food production. This involves increasing production with the same or even a reduced environmental footprint, delivering a better sustainability outcome per unit of production. So a given agricultural operation might have a smaller or larger environmental footprint. For example, uh, consider cattle on a property in the Northern Territory, um, versus cattle in a feedlot, or consider dry land cropping over vast areas versus the more intensive version of irrigated cropping. What matters more is the relative performance, the environmental footprint per unit of production. In most cases, more intensive food production activities deliver a more sustainable relative performance. All right, that's fascinating. So let's jump into the companies that presented during this conference. Um, I believe that there were eight companies that presented. Um, Emma, I might start off with you. Can you give us a, a bit of insight about Clean Seas that presented, and uh, in particular, who they are and what they do? Sure, so Clean Seas is an Australian producer specialising in sea cage aquaculture of yellowtail kingfish. Um, the company's highly focused on managing its farming operations using best practice sustainability methods, starting with farming the fish in their native waters. At the conference, management were able to highlight significant improvements to farming activities associated with animal welfare, nutrition, survival rates, and reducing fish in, fish out ratios as well as their carbon and nitrogen. Sorry, products. Emma, for, for though, what's, what's fish in, fish out? So basically to feed a fish, you need to feed them more fish. Um, what you'll find is that in the, in the feed that is delivered to fish in the fish farms, often this comes from wild or captured fish. So for sustainability farming, it's really important to find ways to A, source your um, feeds from sustainable sources, and secondly, find ways to swap out uh, omega-3, which is necessary in the diet, with either plant-based alternatives or other sort of feed additives that can help improve the conversion rates of food. So Emma, to grow these fish in a sustainable way obviously comes with a cost. Who's wearing this cost? Well, pleasingly, 
a lot of the demand's been driven from the consumer or even the retailer end. So we're seeing um, supermarkets increasingly prioritise sustainable products and the end consumer's increasingly more willing to pay a higher price knowing that the, the, the fish that they're buying has been bred and um, produced in a sustainable way. All right, that's, that's fascinating. Um, let's move across to the next company, and that's Costa. Um, James, maybe uh, can you give us a bit of insight uh, for those not familiar with the Costa company, what they do and um, anything interesting that's caught your eye and what they've been up to? Yeah, sure, Ted. So Costa Group are um, Australia's largest producer of fruit and vegetables. Um, they produce across categories like berries, citrus, tomatoes, mushrooms, and they've also got offshore operations growing berries in China and Morocco. And I think berries and blueberries in particular is a great category to focus on here because Costa has what you would describe as a a fully integrated operation and, and importantly, that's led with a varietal improvement program. So for 30 years, Costa has been trialling and commercialising new varieties of blueberries. Uh, More recently, Costa has commercialised two new blueberry varieties. The Arana variety is a larger berry, uh, easier to pick and therefore lower cost of production which fits in nicely with the striving for sustainability. The Delight berry um, is the second one uh, of the two I mentioned. The Delight berry, uh, again even more recently brought to market and commercialised, it's bred for tropical climates. So what that enables is uh, more sustainable year-round production of uh, a fruit that a lot of consumers like to enjoy. So at the time of recording, uh, we're in winter here. Does that mean that Costa will be sourcing blueberries right now from North Queensland and the summer months down here, sourcing them from farms in Victoria, New South Wales? That's right, Ted. So um, certainly I'll, I'll speak on behalf of the Ferrier household. We'll consume a lot of blueberries uh, during spring and over the summer months where a punnet of blueberries might retail for $2, uh, $3. Unfortunately, during the cooler months uh, and, and as a result of historically constrained um, varieties not, not amenable to that tropical climate, um, consumers have got to pay up to $10 per punnet for blueberries uh, in those cooler months. And as you said at the top of the discussion, that's a reflection on supply, not demand. And you're going through types of blueberries. I never think of varieties. I just buy a punnet or whatever they are. Um, Whereas with apples, I've got my choice. It it doesn't seem like consumers care that there is actually different things in the packet at different times of the year. We could have a whole new discussion on the challenges of branding food produce. Um, Really difficult to achieve. Um, With with blueberries, and in this particular example, what you've got is, is to the naked eye, a materially larger berry. Uh, And so quite obviously, you can see a point of difference uh, with with more traditional mainstream varieties of blueberries. And Costa own that that berry? Costa own the, the, the variety. So have Costa got proprietary rights to this berry? What's preventing someone else doing the exact same thing? Well, Ted, nothing's preventing anyone from trying to, um, through their own efforts and their own hard work, 
um, trialling and erroring on new variety development. Uh, but Costa's been doing this for 30 years and there really is no shortcut. Um, what Costa has here is is the ownership of, of these varieties um, and, and, and the traits inherent within them and the opportunity to commercialise those, not just through growing them in their own farms domestically, but growing them in Costa-operated farms in China and Morocco, um, and even looking to sell the licensing rights to those varieties in other markets, um, the Americas, for example. I like what Costa do in that I think you're going through berries, mushrooms, tomatoes. It's usually small, expensive fruit. I don't see them going to watermelons, like the, yeah, the total opposite. And um, one of the other fruits that you identified was citrus. James, can you give us a bit of an update what they're doing here? Yeah, Ted. So it's, it's a really important category for Costa, one of their bigger earnings contributors and one of the categories that they have been growing in strongly in recent years. Um, Citrus is, is traditionally, and, and I guess on some measures, uh, a water-intensive crop. Um, Costa, over the last probably five, uh, perhaps up to 10 years or so, has been able to maintain their orchard yields within the citrus category, but do so with 60% less uh, water usage on farms. So that's a great example of um, creating a, a similar level of output with a smaller environmental footprint. All right, fascinating. Um, let's move on to the next one, and that's elders. Emma, for those not familiar with the elders business, can you provide a bit of colour on this? Uh, yeah, so elders um, operates the Kalara feedlot um, in New South Wales, uh, which is one of its core operations. And Emma, what is feedlot? Um, so a feedlot is essentially a type of animal feeding operation used in intensive livestock farming. Um, the basic principles of a feedlot is to increase the amount of fat gained by each animal as quickly as possible. So if animals are kept in confined quarters, um, fed with grain, they tend to gain weight more quickly and efficiently with the added benefit of economies of scale. So feedlots play an essential role in essentially drought proofing Australia's beef industry by enabling a consistent supply of beef to the domestic and international markets. I did a bit of um, prep reading on this and I think I recall that elders are actually doing some carbon farming or, or looking to go into this space. Is, it, is there anything you can provide on, on how they're approaching this? Yeah, definitely. So elders launched a carbon farming advisory service in July of 2021. Um, and the aim of this service is to help landholders assess the potential for eligible projects and develop land management strategies. Um, the program also helps farmers achieve project registration with the federal government's carbon farming initiative. And elders indicate they, they plan to sort of offer this on a fixed fee basis rather than trying to kind of take a proportion of the carbon credits generated. Um, so for elders, a key benefit for this will be by offering this service on attractive terms, they can really create a valuable opportunity to strengthen their relationship with their client base over time. Okay, that's interesting what, what elders have been up to. Emma, what about Ridley? Uh, can you tell us a bit about that business and what they do? Yeah, sure. So Ridley is Australia's largest commercial provider of high-performance animal nutrition solutions. So they produce a range of feeds, um, everything from cattle feed to sheep to aquaculture to even domestic dog foods. Um, 
so nutrition is obviously essential for sustainable farming. Um, the company takes a very scientific approach to developing feeds and that is aimed at improving feed conversion and performance in general. Um, interestingly, one of the company's more recent developments is the commercialization of a novel prawn feed additive um, called Novak. And this was a technology that was um, initially developed by the CSIRO. Um, it's basically a feed additive that's naturally occurring through um, marine microbes and it, it allows up to a 40% acceleration in the growth rate of prawns when it's added to their regular diet. So to date, Ridley has made pretty good traction with the domestic um, prawn producer customer base and what they're looking to now is exploring opportunities to engage with um, global commercial partners that could help them accelerate their international sales. And for those not familiar with prawn farms, prawn farming, and, and I'm well and truly in that camp, is Ridley producing prawns for the consumer or is the prawns actually part of this feed? So the, the product Novak is essentially an additive that you add to your regular aquaculture feed. So uh, Ridley has their Narangba extrusion plant that produces um, fish feeds and prawn feeds. What they've then developed on the side is this additive called Novak, which when you add to the existing diet of a prawn, drastically in increases feed conversion um, and helps uh, the prawn farmer, so the end customer, um, improve the sort of the economics of developing prawns. Okay. Well, whilst we're on the topic of water, let's shift across to Rubicon. James, I wasn't uh, that familiar with this business. Can you provide a um, provide us with a bit of an update on what Rubicon do. Absolutely, Ted. So Rubicon is a, it's a water technology solutions business. So that means they, they design, they manufacture, they install, they maintain irrigation, automation, software and hardware. Um, and if you can visualise this infrastructure sits somewhere between uh, a primary water storage, like a government-owned dam, and the farm gate. And it's that transmission of water that their IP um, and their assets and their management is involved in. Rubicon aims to address the issue of water scarcity by maximising the water availability and agricultural productivity through improved irrigation water use efficiency. The products that Rubicon are putting in place automate irrigation and can enable up to 90% of distributed water to reach farms, and that compares to average losses in unmodernised distribution networks of approximately 50%. So the opposite to a Rubicon solution is just letting nature run its course, rivers kind of flow. Is, is that what I'm kind of... More or less, Ted. Mm -hmm. um, and so essentially, in terms of those numbers, if you can, I guess, picture it a different way, uh, for every litre of water that flows down uh, an unmodernised or, or unsophisticated system, uh, for every litre that flows down, 50% uh, of that litre is lost in transmission losses, so evaporation, etc. Um, with the help of Rubicon's water technology, um, closer to 100% of that litre of water can reach a farm gate and has the opportunity uh, for conversion into food. Ah, fascinating. James, let's move across to Rural Funds Group. 
yeah, for those not familiar with rural funds, can you provide us a bit of an update what they do? Yeah, sure. So rural funds group are a real estate investment trust. Uh, they own agricultural assets across a range of different segments uh, from almond orchards um, to vineyards uh, and, and more recently macadamia orchards. Uh, and then more on the natural resource side of the equation, they also own a number of cattle properties. And as a real estate investment trust, uh, the trust owns those assets but leases them out uh, to, to various counterparties who will operate um, those assets and, and monetize them in, in the form of an agricultural enterprise or, or a farm. In my research, I read that the fund seeks to invest in sectors in which Australia has a comparative advantage. What do we have a comparative advantage in? Ted, I think one way to think about a comparative advantage is from a cost perspective. Yep. Um, and that tends to align with Australia's abundant natural resources. So um, it, it points to uh, global demand for Australian beef, Australian lamb, our grains and oil seeds, natural resource abundant commodities. But we can also consider that comparative advantage uh, from a more intangible angle. Um, and, and, and Australia rates very highly on food safety standards globally. So even higher cost segments like horticulture can see strong offshore demand subject to trade and biosecurity restrictions, of course, but strong demand on the basis of our high standards of, of food safety. I also read that they are or thinking about converting some cattle and sugarcane properties into macadamia properties. Um, I was thinking, well, surely there's quite a, a time process that, and an investment that needs to take place from planting those trees into a period of time when they're producing uh, macadamia nuts. I was like, is this something that they're doing right now? And what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, Ted, I think um, uh, agriculture is synonymous with patient capital. Um, and and that's, a, that, that's a good example you refer to there in terms of the conversion. Um, in this instance, with the Rural Funds Group, uh, what were some sugarcane farms um, and converting them over time um, to macadamia orchards. Um, but really, if I take a step back here, what we're talking about um, in linking this into sustainability is the idea of moving an asset towards its highest and best use. Uh, and Rural Funds Group has been involved in this for, uh, for a long time, decades. Um, if I go back to 2007, Rural Funds Group converted grazing land in southern New South Wales to a high-yielding almond orchard. Um, significant capital investment, um, but delivered increased agricultural output per unit area, um, or if you wanted to think of it a different way, um, increased output per megalitre of water. Um, Ted, you mentioned the macadamia um, example. That's one that, that uh, Rural Funds Group is embarking on now. Um, but it's not just about transitioning from one crop to another. What we've seen with many of the cattle properties that Rural Funds Group have acquired is an outcome whereby we've seen increased carrying capacity, um, increased weight gain and breeding potential on many of those properties. 
uh, relatively modest capital investment to increase water points as an example or imp improve pastures and that has delivered up to a 50% increase in stocking density. All right, fascinating. Emma, the last company that I, I want to discuss is Select Harvests. So we might start off with a bit of a, um, a higher level view of what Select Harvest do. So Select Harvest is one of Australia's largest almond growers. When thinking about the opportunity that's ahead of Select Harvest, it's worth taking a step back and looking at sort of the global demand and supply dynamics for almonds. So the USA currently produces 80% of the global supply of almonds. Um, and as you've probably seen in the news, um, the, region is, the region is experiencing more frequent and severe droughts and the associated water market reforms that could constrain production growth in this region could have a you know, dramatic impact on the supply of almonds globally. Um, moving your attention to demand, demand for almonds is continuing to grow quite rapidly. Uh, there's obviously growing demand for your regular snacking almonds, but we're also seeing increasing demand from other consumption occasions. One of the obvious ones being almond milk, uh, which is now a staple in most cafes and many households. So Select Harvest is facing quite an attractive opportunity um, where Australia offers quite a low production opportunity to produce almonds. And given they're already um, one of the biggest producers, we see they're well positioned to capitalise on this opportunity in the medium to longer term. Fascinating, Emma. Now, you just mentioned a big number there. I think it's 80% of the world's almonds are being grown in California. Um, James, you mentioned before rural funds uh, are maybe not pivoting, but moving part of their resources into macadamia and the almond space. So but the, the question that comes straight to mind is why, why isn't the rest of the world planting these almond orchards? Um, what, what, what conditions do they need? Ted, it's, um, almonds are quite a sensitive crop and uh, in terms of the growing conditions that, that, um, that they desire. Um, but I think first and foremost, what almonds need is, is access to um, a large amount and a consistent supply of, of water. At the same time, they prefer dry, dry growing conditions. So you, so you need that water to be supplied in the form of irrigation um, notwithstanding that, you need climatic conditions that are reasonably dry. Um, and probably the third element is, is the, the soil generally um, more productive in sandy, loam, well-draining soil types. And, and ultimately what that means when you look around the world for that trifecta, there's very few places, very few locations that, that are optimal for growing almonds. Um, California, as we've spoken about, Australia, uh, and then probably Spain. Okay, that's that's been fascinating to learn about these these eight companies that are that spoke at the sustainable conference. Um, let's put it all together with some takeaways. Emma, I'll start with you. What are some of the assumptions for the amount of food that we're going to need in the future compared to what we are right now? Yeah, so we've seen research that suggests that agricultural production will need to increase by more than 50% by 2050 to support global populations with ample food and fibre. So this is obviously really significant and highlights the need for further improvements in agricultural um, production efficiency. Okay, 50%, that's, that's, a, that's a big number. Um, James, how well is Australia prepared for this right now? I, 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 I view it as a big opportunity. What's holding us back from achieving the consistent supply we need? Ted, 
I think Australia is well prepared. Australia, uh, in terms of its agriculture industry, is world class. If you think about the, the, the highly variable nature of our climatic conditions, you think about the vast geographic spread in our population, and you think about the very low levels of government subsidisation. Um, our industry has thrived um, over many, many years, uh, and in a relative sense to, to global peers, absolutely world class. Um, through that period, uh, and through some of those extreme conditions, sustainability has been a, a very necessary and ongoing pursuit for the industry. So we've covered some of the strategies uh, and achievements to date, and, and we think Australia is well prepared to contribute strongly to the global need for sustainable growth in food production. Uh, now at the margin, sustainability improvements can deliver more consistent food supply. And we talked about the example with uh, new tropical varieties of blueberries. But um, in reality, natural resources are a critical input to food production. And therefore, we introduce climatic conditions into the supply equation. More volatile climatic conditions potentially means that food supply will remain variable um, into the future. And if we square that circle, that's what we're seeing right now with the, uh, the iceberg lettuce. Absolutely. Well, um, uh, we might end it there. Emma, James, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a fascinating chat. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the Research and Insights tab on the Wilson's website wilsonsadvisory.com.au where some of our research is available also be sure to subscribe or share this episode with a friend think that they may be interested in it okay that's it for this episode see you next time on the invest it best podcast This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.